Well, hey everybody, thanks again for joining us this week on our live stream. We are this week and next week wrapping up the series that we've been working our way through since the beginning of January. So since the beginning of January, we've been following Jesus and the disciples through the Gospel of Mark, and we've just been seeing every story through their eyes. And so today, we're gonna to be talking about the cross, and then next week, we're gonna be talking about the resurrection. So I'm really excited to talk about these two things because they really are the foundation of our faith. They're the foundation of what we believe. And so today, we're gonna to look at the cross. Uh, several years ago, I was in the office of the elementary school where one of my boys went to school. And I was sitting there in the office and I was waiting for uh, a meeting that was gonna be starting and I was gonna have to go back and have a conversation with a teacher about it. So as I'm sitting there, there was a little girl who was sitting there talking with a staff member. And apparently what I could gather from listening in was that this little girl had gotten into a fight with another girl on the playground at recess and apparently she'd hurt this other little girl. And so I'm listening as this faculty member, staff member, teacher is sitting there talking to this little girl and she's asking her about what happened and she says, why did you do that? Why did you hurt this other little girl? And she responded by saying, because I hate her. That was her answer, because I hate her. And so the teacher begins to try to dig into that conversation. And so she says, well, you know, you can't just treat someone like that just because you don't like them. And the little girl responded by saying, why not? I hate her. Why can't I treat her that way? And so the teacher then begins to try to answer this little girl's question. And so I'm just listening in as she's trying to explain and trying to give some kind of reason why you can't hurt someone just because you hate them or because you don't like them. And so she says, well, you know, there are people in my life that I don't like. It doesn't mean I can just hurt them. And again, the little girl says, why not? If you hate them, why can't you just hurt them? And so this conversation keeps going. And actually, I ended up getting called back for my meeting while the conversation was still going. And so I never got to hear how the conversation ended. But it stuck with me. I found myself thinking about that little girl's question and the struggle the teacher was having, responding to her the rest of the day, the next few days. And, and what I began to think about was, who is gonna answer this little girl's question? Who's gonna respond to that question? Who is gonna answer that? Why can't I just treat someone however I want if I don't like them? And I began to realize the school system actually can't answer that question. I mean, they can make rules about behavior and they can, you know, make sure the kids know about those rules. But to answer why I can't treat someone however I want just because I don't like them, the school really doesn't have an answer to that. The government is not going to answer her question either. Uh, the government will make laws and enforce them for her all throughout her life, but the government won't really give a satisfying answer to the value of humanity. And really, no celebrity that this little girl would follow on Instagram is going to answer that question either. I mean, Kim Kardashian will just tell her what to wear. And so as I began to reflect on it, I began to realize the gospel is actually the only thing that can answer her question. The gospel is the only thing in our world that actually can give some kind of an answer to why can't I just treat someone however I want if I don't like them. Because the cross, what we're looking at this morning, the cross makes a dramatic statement to our world. And the statement is, human beings are worth dying for. Human beings are worth dying for. 
Why can't I treat someone however I want if I don't like them? Because the cross insists they are worth dying for. Why should every human being be treated with dignity, whether they live in sub-Saharan Africa or whether they live here in America in the suburbs? Because they are worth dying for. That's what the cross says to us. Why should I not sell myself out and allow myself to be abused and mistreated in, in any kind of way? Because the cross insists that I am worth dying for. There is one character in the crucifixion story in Mark's gospel that you really see this truth through. There, there's this lens I want to look through this morning. We've talked about the cross in all kinds of different ways all throughout the years. Even just recently at, um, at Easter, we talked about the cross. But today I want to look at Mark's gospel account of one character that you really see this idea through his life. His name is Barabbas. And so if you will, you, can you join me in Mark chapter 15? That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, so if you're at home there, you can follow along either on the screen or with your, um, your Bible or your Bible app, whatever works. And so this is Jesus is during his trial. He's, this is the moment where Jesus gets sentenced to be executed, to be crucified on a cross. It says this, verse 16. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews, Pilate asked, for he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. That's the moment that Jesus is sentenced to be crucified and he is led off to be tortured and a crown of thorns put on his head and then marched out to Golgotha, Mount Calvary, where he is crucified. So let's take a look at this character. There's this transaction that happens between this character, Barabbas and Jesus. First of all, we're actually not pronouncing his name correctly. Everybody who I've ever heard talk about Barabbas, they, they pronounce his name just that way, Barabbas. But actually, his name that, that he's called by uh, is actually a compound word made up of two words, bar, which means son of, and Abba, which means father. So you may recall, even in weeks past as we've walked through Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray, he teaches his disciples to call God Abba, to refer to God as Father. So Bar Abba is actually his name. It means son of the Father. So Jesus is a son of the Father. He teaches his disciples to think of themselves as we are sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. So you've got this kind of comparison. You have Jesus Christ, uh, who is a son of the Father, and you have Baraba, which his name means son of the Father. But there's more. What we actually believe is that his name was Jesus Baraba. 
The earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel actually call him that. They call him Jesus Baraba. And so some people have wondered why did they drop the Jesus? Jesus was a very common name at this time. And so his name probably was Jesus Baraba, Jesus son of the father. And the reason that it got dropped is probably in church history, it was viewed as being disrespectful. Actually, Origen, who was one of the early church fathers, actually wrote that it was disrespectful to the true Messiah, to the true Jesus, to put the name Jesus in front of the name Baraba. And so at some point in church history, the name was dropped. But his name is Jesus Baraba. And, and so you have this contrast, these two characters who are on trial for their lives. You have Jesus Baraba, and then you have Jesus the Christ. But that's where the similarities stop. Jesus Baraba had a self-inflicted wound. He was guilty of what he had done. There's no question about it. The text is, is, has no question he was guilty. He was a murderous traitor. He had committed murder. He'd taken life in this uprising, in this revolution. He was deserving of death by Roman uh, law at that time. He was deserving of punishment. He was deserving of death. But Jesus, the Christ, on this other hand, is innocent. He's worthy of being freed. Jesus, not only did he not take life, Jesus actually gave life. We, we've gone through week after week, story after story of Jesus healing people, uh, restoring them to health, feeding people, feeding of the 5,000. Jesus went around making the world better. He went around healing people and giving life. So if there's one person that's worthy of being crucified. It's the other Jesus. It's Jesus Baraba. Jesus the Christ was the one who was worthy of being set free. What Mark is trying to do here is he's trying to introduce us. He's trying to bring us up close and personal to this idea, this theological concept that scholars refer to as substitutionary atonement. That's the big, fancy theological word for it. Substitutionary atonement is what you see all throughout the Old Testament. It was what the priesthood and the sacrificial system and the temple were all based on. So God gave Moses this concept of substitutionary atonement. And the way it worked was this. An animal would be sacrificed, would be killed in place of a human being to, to make atonement for their sin, to pay the price for their sin, the way they had sinned against God, the way they had sinned against society and each other. And so that's what the sacrificial system was based on. And, and if that animal was sacrificed in place of this human being and their sin, that person's sins would be covered over. They would be atoned for. But it couldn't just be any animal. It had to be a perfect blemish-free animal in order for it to actually be an atonement for that person's sins. That's what it says all throughout the Old Testament. So if you had sinned and you knew you, need, you needed to have an animal be sacrificed on your behalf, you couldn't go find like the sheep that was like laying half dead, you know, with a broken leg and it was old and fat and, you know, about five seconds away from death anyways, leaning against the fence and say, there's the one, that's the one I'm going to sacrifice. You couldn't do that. It had to be your best. It had to be the, the top of the flock. It had to be a pure blemish-free sacrifice. What's happening in this moment is Jesus is being introduced to us as God's perfect lamb, his perfect blemish-free son, the best that God had. And Jesus takes the place of Barabbas. He's sentenced to death, and Barabbas is set free.
He's given life. He's allowed to be set free. Jesus becomes the substitutionary atonement for Baraba. So there's two truths I want you to see in Barabbas' life. Mark tells us the story of Barabbas for a reason. And if you can understand these two truths, then there are two truths that are kind of held in tension here in the life of Barabbas, in the story of, of Barabbas. What it, what it will do is it will help you understand the cross. It will change your life, and it also has the power to change and heal our world. So I want to look at these two truths that we see in the life of Barabbas. First of all, we are Barabbas. We are Barabbas. When we look at the story of Barabbas, we are supposed to see ourselves. He's supposed to be kind of like a mirror that we, that we see ourselves in. Barabbas is in, this, in Mark's gospel to stand in for every human being. He's sort of an everyman character in the story because all of us are guilty. All of us have sin. Every single one of us has fallen short. And so what we see when we look at Barabbas is we see ourselves. We're supposed to see that Jesus was a substitutionary atonement on the cross for our sins. I love the way the writer Paul describes the gospel in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He sums up this idea of substitutionary atonement, this moment that's happening uh, in the life of Barabbas by saying this, For God made Christ, who never sinned, he was God's perfect, blemish-free, spotless lamb, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So Jesus died the death that we deserved so that we could live the life that only he deserved. Um, let me tell you and explain to you why this idea is so powerful, to see ourselves in the person of Barabbas. Uh, I have a coach slash counselor in my life. Um, he's an older pastor. His name is Jay. And I've known Jay for the last four or five years. And he's been an incredible mentor to me. He's a pastor who's several years older and just down the road for me in life. And so we get together once a month on a Zoom call and we, we just talk. And he's, he is a coach to me and a counselor to me in life. And the best thing about Jay, that he, the best gift he gives me is Jay asks me really good questions. <laughs> that's what he does. In fact, that's what any really good coach or counselor does. They just ask really, really good questions. And so here's what will happen. I'll be on the Zoom call with Jay, and I'll just be on this rant about something in my life, right? Somebody I'm mad at, somebody that I feel treated me unfair. Sometimes it's about, you know, somebody in my family who I feel like they've just acted wrong to me or treated me unfair. And I'll just be, pastors need a place to vent to about things. So I'll just be venting to him and going on and on about how unfair this is or blah, 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 whatever. And Jay will respond. He'll just start asking me questions. These are literally the kind of questions he'll, he'll ask me. He'll just say, Brian, why do you always have to be right? Why do you feel like you always have to be right and that everybody else has to know you're right? Why? Uh, Brian, why do you care so much about your appearance? Why do you care so much, not just about your physical appearance, but how you appear to other people in this situation? Uh, Brian, why are you competing with that other pastor or that other ministry or that other person? Why, are, why do you feel like you have to compete with them? Or, or this one, the last time we were on a Zoom call, he asked me this question. He said, why do you get so angry when your boys point out your faults? 
that, that's a thing for me. I, I have three teenage boys, a fourth that's about to be a teenager. Let me explain to you about teenage boys. They love to point out when I'm wrong. They love to point out where any fault that their dad has. They love to show me that. Like, look at this, you said this, but then you did that. And what happens is whenever they point out one of my faults, it's like an explosion that goes off inside of me. I just get so angry at them. And, and so this last conversation we had, Jay just said, Brian, why do you get so mad when your boys point out one of your faults? Like, really, do you not think you have faults? See, what Jay is doing for me there in that moment, he's not trying to be mean to me. In a very loving, gentle way, what he's trying to do is he's trying to bring some awareness into my life. Because here's the answer to every one of those questions. The truth of the matter is, that the answer that, that is true about every one of those questions is, the reason I do all those things is because I know deep down there is something wrong with me. There is something broken inside of me that I cannot fix no matter how hard I try, there's no way for me to completely repair it. It's called sin. And so I spend my life, a lot of times, not even aware of it, trying to justify it, trying to excuse it, trying to hide from it, trying to talk my way out of it, trying to you know, change the angle and the appearance so I look like I'm not really at fault. And the reality is, I'm Barabbas. All Jay is trying to do by these questions is he's trying to help me become aware of my own sin. And the, and the reality is awareness doesn't feel good. When we, when we become aware of our own faults, when we become aware of our own sins, it doesn't feel good, but it's the first step toward any kind of real change in our lives. Awareness is the first step toward any kind of real change because awareness is where we come to this place of humility and surrender and, and where we recognize our need for Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for us. I have to be brought back to that again and again and again to find grace in, in my life. See, that's all Mark is trying to do here with, the, with Barabbas. He's holding up a mirror to us. Just like Jay kind of holding up a mirror by asking me these questions, that's what Mark is doing. He's trying to hold up the person of Barabbas and say, don't you see it? We are Barabbas. That gift of awareness is the first step toward any change, but nothing really changes in our lives until we start to live out of the second truth that we see in the character of Barabbas. And the second truth is that we are worth dying for. We are Barabbas, we are guilty, we have sin in our lives. And yet, Jesus' death on the cross tells us that God still considered us worth dying for. When you can hold those two truths in tension, it transforms everything in your life. Several years ago, I did my little sister's wedding as a pastor. I'd, I'd only been a pastor for a few years in ministry. My sister was getting married, and so I got to be the officiant, the pastor, for her wedding. And so we got to the moment where we're in the, the room. I'm standing up on the platform. My future brother-in-law is standing right here to my left. And you know the moment. It happens in every wedding. The, the music plays. Everybody in the room stands and turns to the back of the room. And then my sister and my dad start walking down the aisle. And this is a powerful moment. And my sister is dressed, she looks beautiful, a bride on her wedding day, and my dad is escorting her right next to her. And as they're coming down the aisle toward me, 
I actually have this thought a lot of times whenever I'm, I'm doing weddings. I think to myself, I wonder what the dad is thinking about in this moment. Like, I wonder what's going through his head. And I remember thinking about that as my dad and my sister are, are walking down this aisle toward us. I wonder what is going through my dad's head because the reality is he's walked with her down a lot more than just this aisle, right? I mean, he's walked with her through all kinds of stuff in life. And so because I lived in the same home as them, immediately I start to remember certain things. Suddenly I am remembering uh, the night that my sister and my dad, when she was a teenager, got into this huge argument and it was loud and it was painful and it was about the guy that she was dating at that time. And the argument ended with my sister grabbing her car keys and saying some really hurtful things and going out and getting in her car and just leaving. I can still remember late that night looking out the window of my house long after when my sister was supposed to be back for curfew and my dad is out there standing at the end of the driveway. She's not home. Where is she? And he is worried. And so he, as long as she is out there, he is just standing there at the end of the driveway waiting. My sister still talks about uh, when she would come home from college, my dad uh, and lived in Indiana. My parents lived in Indiana. My sister went to college in Illinois. And so when she would come back home to visit my parents for like a weekend or whatever, my sister still talks about how when the visit was over and when she was getting in her car to leave to go back to the dorm room, to go back to the college campus, she, she talks about how my dad would walk out to the end of the driveway as she was driving away and he would wave to her literally so that like the last face that she would see in the rearview mirror was my dad. Why did my dad do that? With those actions, what my dad was trying to communicate to my sister was, you are worth dying for. When you go back to your college campus, when you go back to that dorm, when you go back to Party Central, you are worth dying for. You have immense value. When some guy wants to date you or whatever, you are worth dying for. And so I'm thinking about these things, and my, and my dad and my sister get to the bottom of the aisle, and, and it's now my turn to ask the question that pastors ask at that moment. So I ask, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And my dad says, I do. And he hands my sister off to my brother-in-law, and I remember thinking as he's handing her off to my brother-in-law, God help this guy if he doesn't know that she is worth dying for. God help him that he's going to have a rough life if he doesn't get it because she knows, she knows she's worth dying for. See, see, when we begin to understand and we begin to live out of this truth that we are worth dying for, it changes everything. Because we stop trying to cover up our sin. We, we stop trying to talk our way out of it, spending our lives trying to justify ourselves. And we come to this place where we accept Jesus' sacrifice for us. We, we allow ourselves to be loved well by him, to be loved completely and fully by him, not based on anything we've done, but what he did for us. And then what happens is we turn and we begin to love other people with that same love we have been loved with. We start to recognize that we are worth dying for, and therefore everyone is worth dying for. That's what begins to happen. When we begin to understand the gospel and let it take root in our lives, the implications are endless. 
This past week, I heard a statistic uh, that just wrecked me. I heard that there are right now three churches for every one child in the foster care system in the state of Michigan. Three churches for every one child in the foster care system. And right now during this pandemic, they cannot find homes. They cannot find places for these kids to go. Why should it bother us that there are three churches for every one child in the foster care system? Because those kids are worth dying for. That's why. Why should we keep sponsoring children in our sister community of Ukro, Ethiopia right now? Why should their poverty and their situation that they're living in affect us in the midst of a global pandemic when our economy is is struggling and many of us have lost jobs? Because those people are worth dying for. That's why. Why should you refuse to stay in a situation where you are being abused, where you're being treated like nothing more than a sexual object in a relationship, because you are worth dying for. The cross tells us that. Why should you refuse to measure yourself by your productivity? Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you've, uh, your sales numbers are down and you're looking at your summer and you're realizing you're not going to be able to do all the things you wanted to do this summer. Why should you not let that define your value? Because the cross tells us that you are worth dying for. Your productivity does not equal your value. Let me go one more. The implications are endless, but, but, but let me end with this one. Why should I accept other people who have different political opinions than me? Because those people are worth dying for. That's why. That's that's what we learn. When we look at the person of Barabbas, what we begin to realize is that we are Barabbas. He's in the story to be a mirror held up to us. We're supposed to see ourselves. We are guilty. We have sin. All of us were broken. None of us is worthy to stand on our own by our own justification. And we don't win by trying to justify ourselves and make ourselves appear right. We win by accepting the death of Jesus on our behalf and then by living as if we are worth dying for. That's how we're transformed and that's how our world is healed. What I'd love for you to do right now is I'd love for you just to sing along with us or if nothing else, listen to the words of this song as we sing together about the cross and just reflect on what the cross has done for you and what it means for you in your life right now.